From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Nancy Olson Livingston is my guest. She's an Academy Award nominated actress, philanthropist, and the author of a wonderful new memoir, A Front Row Seat, an intimate look at Broadway, Hollywood, and the age of glamour. And I'm honored that she is spending some time with us today. Nancy Olson Livingston, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. You know, a lot of memoirs are written in a way that they avoid naming people who maybe did things that were questionable or, you know, or showed poor judgment or were just, you know, terrible. But your book, A Front Row Seat, An Intimate Look at Broadway, Hollywood, and the Age of Glamour, it has the advantage, I guess, of being written by uh, the last woman standing. I mean, you don't have to apologize to anybody because they're all they're all gone. <laughs> Was that an advantage? Or, was that all right? Uh, excuse me, what did you just ask? I was saying, was that an advantage that you didn't have to worry about what any of the people would think about what you wrote about them? Oh, no, no. I would very much. First of all, it was absolutely essential for me to be as truthful and as honest as possible, because that's that was real. At least that was my experience. And um, if I had a negative quality or a negative experience with somebody, I'm going to share it. Uh, But I'm going to do it, hopefully, from a human point of view, that we all do things at various points in our life that we regret. And um, many times we do them over and over again. Yes. We finally realize, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, were, were there any things that you held back that you said, oh, no, I can't share that? Or did you just let it all out? That's a good question. Um, I think that when I started writing, and it, it was because I wanted to really tell you the story of my experience, and what I gathered was their experience, and who they really were, because many of them were part of our history. Yes. And they... They changed history. And um, so, therefore, I wanted to be as truly honest as I could and give them, give people a picture of who they were and what they were, they seemed to be about and what they understood. Many times what I did not understand. Yeah, oh, that, that's one of the most marvelous parts of your book is that we get to experience it with you and and see what you went through um, when you were younger and not having the advantage of, of uh, age and wisdom. Right. Truly. Yes. You know, of course we've heard a lot about say, well, president Kennedy, for instance, about his uh, misadventures, but no one, I've never heard anybody tell me the way you did that. Well, I actually wrote about what happened. Yeah. And actually we became friends and uh i voted for him very enthusiastically he was my first choice and uh i loved i thought he married a wonderful woman jackie and i applauded him for that and i was with him the night he was inaugurated in a very special small group after all the balls and ceremonies and that kind of thing and so but those are interesting things for people to read about 
and to know. Fascinating. Well, did he acknowledge later that he, well, let's call it that he made a pass at you, let's say that. (laughs) Did he ever acknowledge it? No. But he was certainly, the last time I saw him was the night he was inaugurated. And uh, he was dear about his behavior with me. Very warm and very uh, appreciative. I, I think you you imply that when you sat with him at a dinner and were talking with him rather than uh, flirting, that you wanted to express your opinions and your ideas, he wasn't quite as interested in you. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, but I didn't do that. Well, maybe deliberately. I wanted to say, let's put this relationship on a different level. Uh-huh. Um, but it was also, it was who I was. I am a Midwestern daughter of a doctor and a school teacher and one being a moderate Republican, one being an extremely liberal Democrat, both very sophisticated, very educated. And you know something? Both understood how valuable education you're a teacher. You know how valuable education is. And it it absolutely hurts me and grieves me that there is not more emphasis today by both of our parties on how important it is to be educated. Well, you know, apparently it's not so important to a lot of people. Oh, but it, it is. It's the most important thing I can think you can give someone. I really do. I'll tell you the immigrants Yes. My my grandparents who were mm-hmm. born in Sweden. My other grandparents were born in America, but nor I'm half Norwegian and half Swedish. You know, is how educated how one theme can you be? Um, but my Swedish grandmother and grandfather had five children, and every single one not only graduated with a BA with a master's, a BMA from Harvard, a master's from MIT in engineering, a PhD in education from the University of Wisconsin. I mean, my mother was the only one with a PA, just a BA. Well, do you, uh, excuse me. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, Are are you frustrated then when you you hear, uh, I just pick a name out of the hat to say Marjorie Taylor Greene, say, some some unintelligent things or the former president of the United States say extremely unintelligent, uneducated, uninformed things. Uh, and the rest of their constituents are just fine with that. In fact, they're threatened by educated people, I think. And therefore they don't want, they want the masses to stay uneducated because they can stay in control more easily they will believe what is not true more readily and it it breaks my heart truly now i never graduated from college because i was starting a career at paramount and i was going to ucla at the time and i couldn't finish my parents i think would rather have me finish college than be a movie star and what about you? Are you happy that you became a movie star rather than finish college? I'm sorry about that, but 
let me tell you, I married two of the most educated people in the world. I spent time with the most educated, including my own family. And I think that my education never stopped in that regard. Well, you you were married twice. And I want to ask you, did you ever accidentally call your second husband by your first husband's name? <laughs> I was destined to marry Alan, A-L-A-N-L. And my monogram has been N-O-L since I was 21 on my jewelry, my luggage, my linen, my everything. Very convenient for you. You chose a husband based on your already monogrammed uh, wardrobe. I didn't have to change everything the second time (laughs) I married. And if I said, Alan, darling, never made a mistake. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, for our listeners, you were you were married to Alan J. Lerner, the the lyricist of My Fair Lady and Paint Your Wagon and and uh, Camelot. Camelot. And oh, there's a new uh, production. I saw there's a new production of Camelot and a book. The, the, they have a new book written by Aaron Sorkin, and I was thinking yes. that you probably approve. You know something? It needed a new book. Uh, the 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 score is simply wonderful. The lyrics and the music. Um, Alan and Frederick Lowe had a partnership that was absolutely unique and wonderful. I think, well, Brigadoon was a masterpiece in every regard. I mean, I listen to listen to it sometime. It is so beautiful, the whole thing. And uh, Paint Your Wagon, again, had a book problem. He did... uh, an American in Paris, which he did the book and used and interceded with the, uh, he, he was given this Gershwin score to choose from. He did a great job for that and won an Academy Award for the script. And then he did um, Royal Wedding, a movie. And that That's was Fred Astaire dra- dances that upside was Fred down. Astaire, right. And then he did, um, then he did, my Fair Lady, which he dedicated to me, which was very nice. <laughs> and he did that with Fritz. But he had My Fair Lady. He had George Bernard Shaw. So he already had a brilliant book with fabulous dialogue. And then after that, he was reading uh, The Once and Future King and about King Arthur. And he began to to create in his mind the musical Camelot. The score is fabulous. The book never quite worked. So let's hope that Mr. Sorkin can pull it together and it'll be really interesting. Will you go to New York to see it? You know, my daughters, want my two learner daughters and granddaughters want me to come to New York for that. But no, I'm not traveling anymore. I'm really not. Yeah. Um, I'd still drive. And go to the bank and get my hair done and uh, go to, you know, to the market, that kind of thing. But I don't drive at night anymore. And I think what worries me is not so much getting on an airplane and traveling. If I could stay with one of my daughters, that would be fine. But they don't have room for me in their New York apartments. And and I don't I can't live out in the country. One of them has a house in the country. And um so for me to be in the in a hotel room by myself is not a good idea at yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, you did strain credulity in your 
in your marvelous book, um, A Front Row Seat, an intimate look at Broadway Hollywood and the age of glamour, Nancy Olson Livingston, when you claimed that you had an apartment in New York with plenty of room for your family and you moved to California and the house was too small. <laughs> well, <laughs> Alan, you know, we, we didn't know where we were going to live. His little house, his little bachelor house had an extra bedroom, but I had two daughters and a, a governess and a huge staff in New York City. I was going to now move into this little tiny house. So I worked out with a friend whose husband was coming to New York to do a project. And I was going to take her large house in Beverly Hills, all with furniture and everything I needed. And she was going to take my large apartment in New York. The whole deal for her husband fell through. Hmm. So she... She quickly found a house for us to lease until we found a house for us that we really could live in. And I shared a bedroom bedroom with Alan, of course, but a a bathroom with two daughters who used to have their own bath and bedroom. And now with the three of us, there we were. And um, then Alan had his own little room in the back and bathroom. But anyway, we were we were absolutely squeezed, but it was kind of wonderful for the first two years because we were truly a family and we were, there was something very magical about it and different. The first night that we had dinner in the dining room and I had made the dinner, which they, they said, mommy is making the dinner. (laughs) And, and um, I was lighting the candles and Alan came down the stairs and he had gotten home from the office with his shirt and tie and suit and, you know, the president of the company. And he had changed, showered, put on his slacks and a sweater and velvet slippers and came down and said, no, stop your mother from lighting the candles. We're not sitting down yet. And we're going to have a little drink together. And we'll call you and Liza, Jenny and Liza, to come down. And the two of us sat in this little den, and he was behind the little bar, and he made the two martinis. He gave me one, and he had one. And he sat down, and he said, tell me about your day. And we did that every night before dinner, without children, without TV, just with each other. It was nice to have a man to listen to you. But not only that, I listen to him. I want to know what's going on there. Yeah. Anyway, that night, finally, we called the children down and I lit the candles. And I said, Alan, you're over there. And Liza, you're there. And Jenny, you're here. And we all sat. And there was this moment of silence where the four of us together for the first time and Jenny said oh mommy I'm so glad I'm not a princess <laughs> how nice how nice and this so, now for our listeners this is your second husband Alan Livingston right who changed my life I have to say he changed my life changed your life oh absolutely I mean to, one of the, to me one of the greatest 
days of my life was when John Lennon met Paul McCartney. And if not for Alan Livingston, I may have never known that the Beatles existed, but he brought me the Beatles. And for that, I am forever grateful. I want you to know that Alan called me from the office and said, I'm coming home for lunch. I said, what? He never came home for lunch. And I, he said, I want you to hear something. He came home. We had a quick lunch. And then he brought me into the living room and went into the little room to put the record on. And um, he said, I want you to listen to this. He said, in the 30s, there were the big bands. He said, the mid 40s, he said, Frank Sinatra was a phenomenon. They had to close down Broadway when he was appearing at Paramount. There was such hysteria. He said, the 50s was who was who had the Elvis? southern Elvis Presley he said the 50s was dominated by Elvis he said this we're the, in the 60s this is the next step and you heard that record and you said oh my god yes the Beatles are the greatest thing ever oh no I listened to I want to hold your hand I want you to hold your hand <laughs> And I said, Alan, that is the worst thing I ever heard. <laughs> and poor Alan, he went back to the office. He called Brian Epstein, the manager, and said, I'm going to sign them, Elvis. We'll do everything. We'll spend the money. We'll get them really started here. And, of course, the world changed. Thanks to him. Thanks. And, of course, your, your well, husband, Alan Thanks to them. Also brought us the. You mentioned Frank Sinatra, and he was great in the forties, but he was really great in the fifties when he was working at Capitol with Nelson Riddle. Well, thanks to Alan Livingston. Well, yes, because Frank was let go by Columbia, and they said he's his career is finished. He couldn't get a club date, yeah. and and somebody from uh, one of the big uh, agencies called Alan and they knew each other very well. And he said, Alan, this is Sam. He said, um, would you be interested in at all in signing Frank Sinatra? And Alan said, I would. And he said, you would? He said, he is the greatest interpreter of the American song. He said he needs a new repertoire and a new conductor arranger. And he said, he met Frank and said, I want to put you together with Nelson Riddle and let's try it. And Frank said, never. I work with Axel Stordahl and that's it. That was Frank. And Alan said, typical Alan Livingston. He said, okay, let's put out a few singles and find our way. Nothing happened. So one day there were publishers were very, you know, you, pressuring the record companies to use the new songs by their composers. And Young at Heart came across Alan's desk and they were pushing it. And he recognized, as only Alan could, that this song was going to be, they were all the big singers were going to do it. And it was going to get out as fast as possible. So he found out that Axel Stordahl was going to be in New York recording with another group <clears throat> excuse me and he said he called 
Nelson, can you do this and arrange it? He said, I've got the studio on Sunday afternoon. I want to do this as fast as possible. He sent it to Frank and said, please listen to the song just this once, please. Nelson is available. Stordahl's in New York, not available. And we have to get this out before anyone. Frank, Frank heard the song, fell in love with it, knew how we wanted to interpret it. And at Sunday afternoon, there's a picture of, that I have of Alan standing like this in the control booth with a big smile on his face as he's listening to the recording, knowing that he had done something quite wonderful and it was going to change everything. And it did. Fairy tales can come true. <laughs> true. <laughs> Well, let's let's uh, uh, Nancy Olson Livingston. Let's talk a little bit about your fabulous uh, film career. You um, uh, you made many great films, but probably your best known for a classic film in which you were co-starring with the the great silent star Gloria Swanson, and of course everybody knows I'm talking about Airport seventy five. <laughs> Please <laughs> don't mention it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did my homework and I watched a lot of your uh, pictures while I was planning to talk to you. And I watched Airport 75. And oh, my God. You were you were uh, the mother of Linda Blair, fresh off of her uh, exorcist uh, fame. I was afraid she was going to throw up uh, pea soup on you on the plane. And Helen Reddy came over and sang a song. Yeah, right. <laughs> Please. <laughs> She was a nun, but you were great. You were always great. That was the thing. No matter what you were doing, I think you treated everything very, you didn't ever toss anything off. I saw you do a Barnaby Jones. Uh, you don't talk much in your book about your post-absent-minded uh, uh, professor films or any of the, uh, you continued acting for many years after those. Well, films. but only when I was asked and when they said, Nancy, we'll fit this in with what your rest of your life is at the moment. And there won't be too much demand, you know, et cetera. So I'd say, okay, fine, I'll do it. Now, when I did Sunset Boulevard, it, that changed everything. And it, 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 in a way, it changed the motion picture business as well. Yeah. Because what it did was it revealed the truth about the movie business. And that stars, movie stars, were commodities to be sold and they were therefore exaggerated they were more beautiful than they really were they were more sexy they were more vulnerable they were more whatever and the more vulnerable the human being was like a Marilyn Monroe the better they were at this they accepted it they loved it they played right into it and they believed it like Norma Desmond but when they got to a certain age, they were thrown away. It's it's such an outstanding movie, and I, I watched it the other night again, and it was it's marvelous. And you're so great in it. And the scene when you when you uh, confront him at her at Gloria Swanson's house is just it's so touching and, and beautiful and so well done. And you're great in it. And your nose is fantastic. So you you you. That is Nancy Olson Livingston. You have a beautiful nose, but Betty Schaefer, she had to have her nose fixed to look like. Yeah, yes, I know. <laughs> and for years, I got letters saying, 
who fixed your nose? (laughs) It's great. They did a great job. (laughs) So I I want to ask you about, I want to ask you about some of the people that you worked with that, that I admire and and love. And uh, we were talking about Frank Sinatra earlier, but I think, you know, one of the greatest voices of all time was, was Bing Crosby. And and you starred with him in a film in 19 something with um, right after sunset. Yeah, Mr. Any of it was, was it's one of the o- I, I watched it, but it's one of the <laughs> only uh, Bing Crosby films that's not like readily available. But uh, it's good, and you're great in it. You're really funny in it. <laughs> well, I was too young for Bing, for goodness sake, and it, it was not a great movie. And the fact that I was too young really came into conflict with the movie. It didn't. It should have been better than it was. Um, but Bing became a great friend of mine. Yeah. And he, you know, they, as I've written, they treated me as a charming child. (laughs) And, and I was beginning to see Alan Lerner. So I had a, I was kind of, you know, I'd come in the studio and it was like, well, wait a minute, when are we going to be finished with this? I've got a date for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did you find Bing Crosby as a as a person? Was he warm? Was he distant? Or people say he was a very distant person. He was a very distant person. I I think I wrote that he had a cold blue eye, but he was very nice with me. He was not flirtatious, nor was I, and he respected my being a Wisconsin straight shooter, and um, would never even cross a line for a moment. And uh, the, and one of the, th- the things that, that I, I wrote about that's interesting about being in as a d- differentiating from uh, Frank Sinatra, Frank always listened to the lyric first of every new song. He wanted to read the lyric. Bing wanted to listen to the music first. Because Bing had this wonderful baritone, and he wanted, did it, will it show it off, the melody? Can he use it? And so they were very different in that aspect, and they sang different songs. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was not impressed, by the way, with the score of Mr. Music. Not, Not a great one. No. And and that was too bad. If it had been a, you know, it was about a man who sang and wrote songs. It's too bad. Does, did Bing play the piano? He seems to be playing the piano, but I don't know if he really played. I don't think so. No. But you play well. I yeah, I won all kinds of prizes growing up. I'm very musical, and when when I met. Alan Lerner, and he had said that he had written Brigadoon. I didn't realize that he only wrote the lyrics. I thought he wrote the music as well. I mean, I was in, fell in love with him immediately <laughs> because I adored that score. Do you still and, play? Pardon me? Do you still play? You know, I went to my brother's house with all my children here and, and or with my son and grandchildren and we're a very close family. I just have my brother and myself. And he lives in Brentwood. I live in Beverly Hills. So we're, you know, we're, we see each other once a week at least. 
And somebody asked me to play the piano and play some hymns. Now I play by ear too. And so I went to the piano and it was a piano that my mother and father had in their house in Milwaukee. It's what I learned to play on. Wow. It's a fabulous piano. I love it. It's a grand pan piano. And um, I found myself playing all the hymns and people now started crowding around, around the piano and wanted to sing with me, you know, with the piano. And so I don't do it much anymore, I must say. I have a wonderful piano in my house here. And um, I pass it all the time in the living room. And once in a while, I said, wait a minute. And I'd sit down and just start to play. And I have up on the, you know, the, where you put the score. Um, I have a book of Chopin for the piano. And I have a couple of favorites. And, and so I can play them by a, pretty much by memory, but I get stuck somewhere. And I go back to what's in the book. Um, but I don't do it often. I read the New York Times every day. <laughs> Well, that's depressing. I, I live in Los Angeles, but I said to Alan when we got married, Alan Livingston, okay, I'll marry you under one condition. I get the New York Times every day. He said, it's a deal. <laughs> you, do you, uh, are you still a New Yorker uh, at heart then? I when, About two years after Alan died, I sold the apartment. It was just too hard for me to get back and forth and take care of it. It was a big nice apartment sure. and my son he, when he was getting his master's at NYU he lived there my stepson Peter who was lived in Toronto but he was a book uh, agent of book writers mm-hmm. he used it as his office to come down to New York and sell you know his books um, my daughter graduated from Berkeley and then she got a very interesting offer to do something in New York, again, for a book club or a book um, editor. And so she moved in. I said, enough. <laughs> so when Alan died about two years after that, for me to go back and forth and for to me to keep it all up for everybody else, I said, no, no more. But then I visited New York often with my two daughters. Yeah. Not anymore. Well, I, I was, um, as I was saying, I was watching a, a, as much of your work as I could get my hands on. I watched this episode of Gunsmoke that you did. And uh, it, uh, it was a, a really interesting episode. I don't know if you remember it or not, but it, it was, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought, oh, it'll be cool to see Nancy with James Arness, with whom she co-starred in that great film, Big Jim McLean, one of your... <laughs> Um, but in fact, you don't appear any at any in any scene with James Arness. In fact, hardly any of the cast of Gunsmoke is in this episode. It's all about you and um, uh, um, Forrest Tucker, and you uh, you have a daughter, and it's uh, it was a very moving episode. And like I was saying, you didn't just toss it off like, oh, I have to go do a Gunsmoke. You did a beautiful job with this. And it was kind of a proto-feminist episode as well. You should Thank watch you. it. I I don't frankly remember it that well. 
It was back in season 17 of Gunsmoke. I, I had well, a job over there. <laughs> I must tell you that when I was doing Sunset Boulevard, I was still trying to finish college, but I just had to give it up. I just couldn't do it because I was immediately cast in Mr. Music with Bing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no way for me to do both. But there I was arriving at 7 a.m., hair and makeup, nine showing up on the set to noon, lunch until one, finish at six, and then go home and shower and take off makeup and get some rest and look at the next day's shooting and start all over. There was no life. I was 21. Yeah. And I, what, I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted to meet new people. I wanted to be out in the world. And at that time, we worked six days a week. Mm. We didn't have the weekends. And also being on that huge soundstage, you know, two stories high and with a cameraman, a director, assistant director, a makeup man and a hairdresser. That's how I spent my days. Mm. And I thought. I don't want to be a movie star. I can't do this every day for the rest of my life. There's a whole world out there and there's so many interesting things going on. I want to be a part of it. I want to know more about it. I want to enter it. And so when I married Alan Lerner, Sunset Boulevard, Mr. Music, Union Station, Submarine Command, please, <laughs> had never, weren't even released. Yeah. So your whole career was ahead of you, but you were already done with it. Done. And I said to the studio, because I was under contract for seven years, and now it was only like a year and a half. And I said, I, I'm so sorry, but I don't think I want to be a movie star anymore. And I'm going to move to New York, and I'm no longer available. Well, when they started releasing those movies, the pressure for me to continue was so great. You have no idea. I mean, I never heard from my agent and all of a sudden Sunset comes out and there are four, 14 phone calls a day. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, award nomination as well. So, I, and also, by the way, do you know any movie star of that period who had a happy marriage (laughs) family life i'm a midwestern girl jack and mary (laughs) benny maybe (laughs) maybe Maybe. (laughs) who knows i mean very few Mm -hmm. yeah and i thought no this is you're just as famous as you want to be Pardon me? You're just as famous as you want to be. It's famous enough. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But actually, then when I would be interrupted after several months, six months, whatever, and they'd come up with an interesting challenge, 
something why don't you know for instance when they said uh john wayne wants you to come to you know do this in hawaii well it was almost perfect timing i had to get out of there my marriage was beginning to falter and i it was great for me to have and i wanted to know who this icon was and so i had a very interesting experience doing that but how i don't recommend john just- wayne i say how did you find john wayne was he a nice person or was he a john different- wayne never flirted with me ever but he wanted to he got to know me I called him John. Everybody else called him Duke. He never corrected me. But he and I were friends forever. If we saw each other somewhere, it was John, Nancy, that kind of thing. That's nice. That's nice. And so that was nice. I'm sure the politics was, of that movie annoyed you. Well, oh my God. <laughs> and there was a sexual mystery about john oh he only related to latino women a bit like marlon that's who right. only related to asian women yeah um uh, there's a reason for that and i don't know how to articulate it i guess whatever turns you on or whatever it is i guess Like you were married to two Jewish men named Alan, so. But you have to understand that they both were never bar mitzvahed. Mm, Okay. (laughs) They grew up in a family. They never went to a temple. Yeah. So secular Jewish men. So it was, um, I was baptized and kidnapped by my grandfather and in the dining room, they put some water on me by the pastor did too. And cause he was a scared that my brother and I were going to die in hell. If we were not baptized, <laughs> he was a Lutheran, you know, deep believer. And my parents were, that's fine. If it means that much to you, of course, that's, you know, they were not angry or upset, but David and I went to Unitarian Sunday school, which is, it studies Buddhism, Buddhism, they study Confucius, they study Moses. Jesus is their number one teacher. And I remember, am I repeating myself? No. I've been interviewed recently and I talked about I this. Understand. That, yeah. That's what I am worried about. Um, I will never forget the lesson of forgiveness, which is one of the hardest human things to do and but they didn't say that mary was a virgin and that you know they were not involved they were only interested in the teaching and the value of it and the meaningfulness of it and so for me to marry two jewish men who were also non-affiliated in any emotional way if they I could not have married them if they had been mm-hmm. and they both loved Christmas because Scandinavians you know that's a big celebration of course all the best Christmas songs are written by Jews yes of course <laughs> <laughs> now, 
I wanted to ask you one other thing about your early days in movies, and you kind of alluded to it, but for years watching movies uh, all my life, and I've seen movies where Audrey Hepburn is teamed with Gary Cooper, or you are teamed with Randolph Scott, or, uh, you know, younger women with older men, uh, you know, Fred Astaire and and Leslie Caron, you know, she was like 12 and he was like 70. But, uh, yeah, right. yeah you know what I'm asking. So what what, what was it like to be and on Fred the... Fred Murray and I were like, yeah, he was, like, he was so like my father's age. <laughs> yeah, and you were supposed to be his wife. So uh, what was it like to be on the receiving end of that kind of casting? Did that bother you? Yes, somewhat. Bill Holden was much more a natural partner. In term, he was ten years older, but still, he. So were my husbands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad they they weren't any more than that. Uh, I, the older actors learned how to stay young, or younger, so that helped. Um. And each one I learned something from and had a friendship with. It's interesting. Mm. Well, also, I want to ask about you are, you've been on Broadway. You've done some Broadway shows. Oh, yes. And uh, is there you've acted on television, you've acted in film and you've acted on the stage. And I want to know if those are all the same skill or if there is a different set of skills you use for each medium. It, it's it's different. It's so interesting I've written about this too, that Alan Lerner said, nobody goes to a bookstore to buy a a screenplay. They do go to a bookstore to see the great literature of the theater, starting with Shakespeare and Moliere and Tennessee Williams, et cetera. And that's because the camera tells part, half of the story. If somebody is sad and instead of explaining it and describing it in language, in the language skills of the great writers, you, the camera would come in and do a close-up and there'd be one tear going down your cheek, told the whole story. So, by the way, that was part of, of Billy Wilder's brilliance, was how to use the camera. Mm-hmm. And when to cut and when to pull it in and push it, pull it out. And um, he understood it very much so. You worked with so many great directors, Michael Curtiz and Raoul Walsh, Robert Wise, just a couple I can think of. Yes, Billy was the most special. The only problem with Billy is that Billy would usually, unless something fell down, he would do it in one shot. And when my, when I, the first scene that I played, which was the first scene that I had in the script in Sunset, I was dying to do it again because the first time I was on this set with all these notable artists, everybody, and with Billy Wilder and good God, I, and Bill Holden, uh, now we've rehearsed it, and that was great. But 
I was somewhat anxious is the word. <laughs> and I just said, Billy, oh, when he said cut, I said, Billy, please, could we do it one more time? And he said, that's it, cut. Oh, now when you watch that now, and that's the scene where you come into the office and tell the producer that uh, William Holden's script is terrible. Yes. <laughs> um, when you watch that now, do you think, oh, I could have done that better. I wish I... I even fumbled on a word. Oh. And, and I mean, I just was... And when he said, no, Nancy, it's fine. That's it. <laughs> oh, my God. I, it, it, it obsessed me to this day. <laughs> well, you don't want to be upset because not only is it great, but, you know, you got an Oscar now. And I knew that I was not gonna, going to win. Nobody won, by the way. Bill... Gloria Swanson, yeah. Billy. Maybe it was a misunderstood picture because, as you were saying, it was revealing a little too much of what Hollywood didn't necessarily want revealed. Exactly. Well, um, there's so much to talk about. Um, Nancy Olson Livingston, your book, A Front Row Seat, An Intimate Look at Broadway, Hollywood, and the Age of Glamour. And your your memory is uncanny. You remember everything you ever wore, ever. <laughs> You know, I had a couple of women friends who read the galleys who said, Nancy, you've got to take that out. You've got oh, to. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't. And, and then whenever I'm interviewed by a man, they, many of them bring it up and say, I loved your description of what you wore because I can see you walking into the room. Yeah, with your jewelry. And, and saw exactly jewelry. how you looked. <laughs> but also it describes a time when we all wore things differently. Yes, a lot of people dress a lot nicer than we do now. We, we don't dress like that anymore. We don't put ourselves together. I remember about 30 years ago, I was in New York and I went to the theater and people had shorts on and I said, oh my God, it's the end of the world. Nancy Olson Livingston, thank you so much for visiting with us on From the Bookshelf. I, I would like to go on talking to you all day. Oh, please, we could go on and on, but... All good things have to end. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. Patty Farmer returns to the show now. She's an historian and the author of many books, including The Persian Room Presents, Playboy Laughs, Playboy Swings, and Playboy on Stage. Her latest book is The What, Where, Why, and How of Tea, and it is called uh, tea under the palms. Patty Farmer, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. It's great to be talking with you again, Gary. Thank you. Hey, I love scotch eggs. They're one of my favorite things. And I was really thrilled to see that there's a recipe for scotch eggs in, in, your, in your new book, uh, Tea Under the Palms. Have you tried preparing all the recipes in your book? Yes, they've all been kitchen tested. And I have to tell you that my publisher is about 12 years old. And uh, she didn't get any of the recipes. You know, she said, Scottish eggs, Scotch eggs, what are they? You know, throw that recipe out, you know, oh, uh, no, oh, jam roly polies, you know, who needs that? And I said, it's a book about tea and I think we'll keep them. So. <laughs> All right, right on. No, I love Scotch eggs. They're delicious. And I got very hungry while reading your book. I don't see how you are so slender, but uh it, in reading your book, I discovered that pretty much everything that I do when, I, when I'm when i preparing tea 
I've been doing it wrongly. (laughs) (laughs) It's very specific, the way that you deal with tea. It's a very specific thing. Well, you know, afternoon tea, first and foremost, should be fun. It it just should be a, a pleasant time to sit down with friends or colleagues and have an hour of relaxed conversation. But having said that, there are a few do's and don'ts. I mean, nobody's going to come and make you leave the restaurant. No tea police. No, no tea police. Um, You know, if it's an afternoon tea, you know, you have to, uh, especially with this demographic nowadays, the millennials and younger. And let me tell you, not to digress, but they're finding tea. It's becoming a growing a trend with the younger demographic for a number of reasons, but um, no, nothing on the table. You sit down, you you uh, put your phones away after you take your selfies that are going to be posted to show how fun and different you are, um, and uh, napkins on the lap. But there are certain things that are a little counterintuitive, you know, from what we've. Uh, been brought up with, you know, and and I won't go into all of them, but one is other than spreading your jam, you do not need your knife. You do not use your knife to break open your scone. You break it open with your fingers. You pick up your sandwiches with your fingers and you do nothing with your knife. So there there are a few uh, nuances like that. <laughs> Well, you get to uh, eat with your fingers. That's fun. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I I usually do, even you know, a steak. <laughs> that could be messy with beef stew. Yeah, I just put my head down and. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you're you you've previously written mostly about entertainment. I remember one of the things that impressed me, and when we first met. I won't say how many years because you don't want me to, but a few years ago <laughs> uh, was when your first book came to me. It was wrapped in a ribbon. Your, your presentation of your books is always so beautiful and perfect. But your books are always have always been about the entertainment industry or the history mm-hmm. of entertainers. And now you've taken this turn to write about tea. Um, is that because you love tea? I assume. But what, why otherwise? Mainly because... I've gotten to a stage in my life where I can write about what I want. And, uh, (laughs) and yes, I do like tea. I like the ritual of it. Um, And I find it fascinating. I've been around the world and I always make reservations for tea. You know, you read my book, you, every single place I mention, I have been there and most of them are my photographs, you know, the peninsula in Hong Kong or the Empress in Vancouver uh, to numerous tea houses in London and Paris and even New York. Uh, it's just something I really enjoy uh, my whole life. It was an important um Kind of almost a lesson to me. My mother took me to tea at the plaza when I was seven years old. And number one, I loved the majesty of it, you know, getting dressed and pulling out your Sunday manners uh, and the ritual, you know, the tiered uh, plates, you know, full of the goodies. And for the plaza, I was mesmerized by the fact that they had 
trees. They had palm trees growing inside their restaurants. And I thought the whole thing was magical. And I decided that was how I wanted to live. And I, from seven years old, I just made it a point that I was going to live like that, you know, live um, a, a, um, not refined, I don't want to get all uh, fuddy dead, but just uh, enjoy life, you know, take time for the small pleasures such as tea. And, you know, having said that, tea's not such a small thing. You know, people think, oh, tea, why'd you write about that? Well, as I say in the book, wars have been waged and royal marriages arranged, uh, treaties signed over that perfect cup of tea. So through the history, it's been uh, an important thing. You know, dowries, you know, the the uh, Portuguese princess Catherine, part of her dowry when she married King Charles was a crate of tea. And that paid off England's national debt, or at least most of it, you know, and it it just uh, through history, it's a big deal. Well, uh, Patty Farmer, your your book, Tea Under the Palms, is not the first book about tea that I read. In fact, I read okay. another book about tea by the novelist Lisa C. She wrote a fabulous book about tea. And in her book, she talks a lot about how much tea costs. There are some teas that are self enormous sums of money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are um, many boutique kinds of teas, but even the uh, the rarer ones are not for the masses because they can't, they can't afford them. You know, it could be I, thousands I of dollars. You would spend thousands of dollars on something that you would then consume. Drink. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you could just get, you know, Lipton. But, um, but you oh my have, God! Did you say that, Gary? Oh. You must have a very discerning tongue. Can you tell exactly what type of tea? And I, I can. I, I, I can do the five kinds. If you put them in front of me, you know, of course, I can uh, pick a black from a green from, uh, you know, one of the others, and I can also tell if they've been brewed correctly because mm-hmm. you have different times. And that each one's brewed. You leave a, a tea in the water for longer with a black tea than with an herbal tea. So, oh yeah, one of the things that I've done wrongly is I uh, leave the water in the tea kettle, and you said I'll never do that. Oh no, 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 <laughs> that's a no, no. All right, I've changed. But it, changed. it works in a pinch if you just want that cup of, you know, who cares, you know. <laughs> Uh, so you you uh, talk a little bit about quite a bit about in your book how when you get that little uh, multi tiered tray of things you can't just randomly grab for them. <laughs> You're not supposed to. You work your way from the bottom up. You know the bottom has your uh, hopefully warm scones, and I'm not being fresh um, <laughs> on the. <laughs> so you start there. And uh, the second tier has your tea sandwiches, and they're not all that uh, fussy nowadays. You know, you have some good hearty uh, uh, roast beef and ham and salmon uh, sandwiches, you know, whereas they used to be just your cucumber sandwiches, you know. So to adapt to nowadays uh, what people want, you have these hearty sandwiches or a mixture. And then the top, which is my favorite, has all the sweets. 
you know, and if nobody's really watching me, that's where I head first. A glass <laughs> of champagne with my tea and the treats on the top. So you're willing to break the rules. That's what I love about you, Patty. <laughs> Let's remind everybody that it's called Tea Under the Palms and the author, Patty Farmer. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf. I so enjoy talking with you and your listeners. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.